0: Hey, Race Capital listeners, it's me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. I'm excited to announce that two additional voices will be joining the Race Capital show. This week, for the first time, you'll hear from Naomi Isaac. Naomi is an organizer in Central Virginia who is passionate about liberation. To learn more about Naomi, follow them on Instagram at N-A-A-A-Y-O-N-C-E. That's right, Neonce. So to richmond and beyond i'm honored to present to you the newest voice on race capital naomi isaac this is race capital
1: with me naomi isaac where we interrogate racial narratives in our place space and time here in richmond virginia the former capital of the confederacy This week on Race Capital, we dive into Virginia's historic steps towards progressivism during this year's General Assembly session. It was announced recently that Governor Northam signed a marijuana decriminalization bill into law. But advocates for restorative justice are saying, not so fast. Right now, progressives are stuck in a limbo with both Republican and Democratic leaders failing to take the aggressive steps necessary to end the war on drugs. Our current situation handling COVID-19 is highlighting the urgency of taking bold action during a crisis. And still, somehow, the mass incarceration of millions of black folks across America as a result of harsh cannabis laws is not seen as a pandemic. And while big names in the tobacco industry like Altria are allowed to profit from their investments in the new medical marijuana industry, Black and brown folks all across the Commonwealth continue to be negatively impacted by our justice system when it comes to cannabis. In fact, Virginia has some of the highest racial disparities in the nation, with black people being almost four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession. And after taking control of the legislature for the first time in over 20 years, Democrats were tasked with proving their commitment to racial justice. Today I'll be speaking with some of the advocates speaking out against marijuana prohibition. First, I chat with Chelsea Higgswise, host here at Race Capital and co-founder of the nonprofit Marijuana Justice. Then, I chat with Ashna Khanna of ACLU Virginia to get the rundown of this year's GA session and to learn more about how COVID-19 exacerbates the issues caused by marijuana criminalization. Finally, we hear from Michigan State Representative Joelle Jones to learn more about expungement policy. So what about a little reefer got all these politicians so mad, and what really happened when the blue wave took on Mary Jane? Stay tuned as we unpack the racial narratives and marijuana justice reform. And one more thing. We'll be shooting from the comfort of our home studio, aka my bedroom, on my laptop, Via Zoom call. So forgive us for any background noise you hear as we work to bring these important conversations to you during these dire times.
0: Chelsea Hickswise, wise host of Raise Capital, but today I'm really here to talk about marijuana justice. A little reminder, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am a co-founder and executive director of Marijuana Justice here in Richmond, Virginia.
1: Cool. And where can people check your, out your work and follow you?
0: Well, y'all know um, you can always follow me on all of the social media, specifically Facebook, IG, and Twitter. And then you can... Find me on all the interwebs of ChelseaHiggsWise.com, RaceCapital.com. And here today, I would love for everyone to go and visit MarijuanaJustice.org.
1: All right. Y'all heard her. (laughs) So let's just jump right in. Um, Marijuana justice was a big topic in Virginia this year. Can you just fill us in on the background on how marijuana became so heavily criminalized?
0: It's a really good question, Naomi. I think it's important for folks to understand how big of a topic marijuana is when it comes to politics. Marijuana has been politicized to now it has been criminalized in 2020 and we are having to do research, organize, and a lot of attitude changing to really see the harm that marijuana prohibition has caused in Richmond and the commonwealth and across the country. So Marijuana Justice was formed last year and we came together strictly for the purpose of advancing attitudes around the use, regulation, reinvestment, growth, and overall legalization of marijuana. We chose the name marijuana justice to um, really push that narrative shift and narrative correction in people's minds. We understand that cannabis is a medical product, cannabis is a flower, but when it comes to marijuana, that is what is illegal and is criminalized in the actual code of our laws all across the country. So when we're talking about the history, I think it's important for us to go back and understand how we got so hard on crime with marijuana. Let's just go back to 1968 with Richard Nixon. He was voted in from a very strong law and order stance. And when he got in, he basically just recruited journalists and media executives to participate in what he declared to be a war against drug abuse. So again, it wasn't politicians, it wasn't researchers. Researchers, it was journalists and media, and they just created this entire anti drug theme from anti-drug theme songs would be used in sitcoms and movies and television stations. It was a commercial airtime business of anti-drug messaging by 1971. But in 1970, Congress passed the Comprehension Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, which then placed marijuana in the most restrictive categories of drugs and meant it had no medical purpose at all. Now, before all of that was actually going to come into place It was being looked at by the Assistant Secretary of Health, and this was pending a report from the Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse that was headed by the former governor of Pennsylvania, Raymond Schaefer. So Schaefer is one of the good guys. In 1973, it came out and it actually called for an end to criminal penalties for marijuana possession and also an end to government's anti-drug education efforts, which the report decried was a waste of money. So, I mean, just stopping right there for a second, Naomi, understanding that Nixon had gone in, was voted in on law and order, tough on crime, a complete ad marketing campaign for anti-drug, and then the commission comes back with a report that says that criminal penalties are a waste of money and actually is not good for the greater good.
1: Right. And I think it's really important, which you touched on earlier about uh, narrative and the media's role in this, because it's never that these stories aren't being told, it's that they're being overwritten. Um, and so it's really important to like, you know, keep that at the forefront of, you know, how we look at this and how we shape our perspective.
0: Right. And it reminds us all that we have to think about systems and not just anything in a silo. Like our politics and our media, I think by now in 2020, we realize how closely aligned they are. But even down to our sitcoms, our celebrities in the 60s and 70s, celebrities were also very highly involved in politics. In the 70s, you had entire anti-drug fundraisers where even folks like Whitney Houston were involved. I mean, they were able to get big names into this. Um, Now, we all know about Watergate, we know with Nixon and there were a bunch of um, recordings of Nixon saying things, including how the war on drugs was basically a scam. Um, And one of the narcotics treatment administrations, there is a quote from Nixon that is talking to one of the people that did this report, and it says, quote, you're the drug expert, not me, on every issue but one, and that's decriminalization of marijuana. If you make any hint of supporting decriminalization, your history, everything else, you figure it out. But that one, I'm telling you, that's the deal, end quote. That's what Nixon was telling the heads of administration of how to deal with this. He's also really made it about morality. He said, quote, you see homosexuality, dope, immorality in general. These are the enemies of a strong society. And that's why communists and left-wingers are pushing the stuff. They're trying to destroy us. End quote. So it, it really has just been an, an, a creation of a narrative around criminalizing marijuana, which we know is really just about criminalizing people, right? Criminalizing people that, ha- that partake in behaviors and values that certain people in power necessarily did not value themselves and actually see as a threat somehow to their own politics. And it's actually
1: interesting that you touched on the homophobia of that piece, just given that we do know that a lot of the beginnings of the fight for legalization of marijuana was actually bred from the AIDS epidemics and survivors and people who are suffering from the AIDS epidemic, taking that on multiple marginalizations that this issue really does have and have an impact on. No, absolutely.
0: No, absolutely. And I mean, it's, and we're still fighting that today. And unfortunately, people don't know that a lot of the advocacy started very much in that community, right? And because those voices have been erased, just like many advocates have been in the past. Um, But I mean, by the 70s, it was known that marijuana was actually not a bad drug. Back in the 40s and 50s, Reefer Madness, the film that was made, At this point, it was now just like a comic relief. No one thought that that was actually something that reefer would make you mad. Marijuana would would drive you mad. And by 1977, it seemed it was just so commonplace talk that even President Jimmy Carter called for decriminalization of marijuana. So what we saw was a more progressive push in the mid-70s, late-70s, and with that type of push and collective action, just like what happened in 2016, more conservative values came together and they immediately doubled down on their campaign for the war on drugs. Because that's, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, that's when we got Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan came in and he also packed on crack and cocaine. Congress passed three major pieces of anti-drug legislation in the 1980s, each more punitive than the last. And in 1986, Reagan called for the implementation of drug testing to ensure that schools and workplaces remained drug-free. So when you see now the drug-free zones, you have to realize that's just part of a larger campaign to criminalize groups of people. And now, to also regulate who can get jobs who can be in, per- in certain buildings in certain spaces now because of this quote-unquote drug-free and now it's under a public safety narrative right and then with that we remember a lot of folks I know I'm 35 and I remember this program the D.A.R.E. program drug abuse resistance education which actually brought police into schools Right, and we, and right, so now in 2020, we also realize how the placement of SROs, school resource officers, in a place of education has been negatively impactful for black and brown students specifically. So the D.A.R.E. program brought, bought in um, officers into the schools. This is your brain on drugs with eggs frying. And then by 1998, we realized that A lot of these programs are just not working. The D.A.R.E. program was then curtailed in many parts of the uh, the country. A number of studies found no evidence that it resulted in decreased drug use among children at all. In fact, it actually said sometimes it might have been known to spark curiosity. They went after our kids, right? And that's an important narrative for what we saw this past General Assembly session and the way that they are still adding on penalties to youth, even though marijuana is now decriminalized for adults. I just wanna throw out there, Naomi, that over 800,000 Americans are arrested annually for marijuana offenses. And very few might wind up in prison the first time, but we know that Black people have been impacted this four times more than white counterparts. We know that just leading up to this from the 60s, that many states took on the three strike laws Um, 22 states took that on from 93 to 95. So just looking again at how this has impacted families, how this has impacted people and economies and neighborhoods, and all of this came out even when we knew marijuana was not bad. In 1944, 1944, the LaGuardia Committee report from the New York Academy of Medicine was the first in a long time of official bodies to question the prohibition. And in 1944, they found that marijuana was not physically addictive, not a gateway drug, and it did not lead to crime. A name that we should all know is Harry Ainslinger, and he was the head of the then Bureau Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he was one of the main names that then of hid that report from scientists and we haven't really seen it come back up Um, even today many people don't know about that 1944 report so unpacking this as you know multi-generations this has been administration after administration no matter what party you're from we've all played a part in continuing to criminalize people because of being in proximity to marijuana and that's what marijuana justice is about um, in, our, in our nonprofit that we formed. We are Black-led, we are Black-founded, and we are coming from the point and the route that marijuana has been criminalized very much to target us specifically. And so we worked really hard over the last year um, to make sure that we were able to get into the General Assembly this past session and we worked with the ACLU. We'd worked with many advocates. We worked with Jennifer Carroll Foy, a delegate who is now a black woman running for governor. Uh, congratulations mm-hmm. on her run. We worked with Senator Jennifer McClellan as well. I was—I'm really excited to say, marijuana justice—not even a year old—we were able to pass a study bill that turned into a resolution to now give us a new report on the legalization of marijuana that will also include the harms of prohibition of the past here in the Commonwealth of Virginia due to making marijuana illegal. So we know that just like in 1944, this data will matter um, as members of the House and the Senate in Virginia go to legalize marijuana in the next couple sessions. They have to have the real information. And we have had a 2017 decriminalization study in Virginia, but we have not had a study to talk about who has been harmed the most how and where those people live and also what would be an appropriate amount of reinvestment into those neighborhoods off of the revenue of marijuana if we don't talk about restitution if we don't talk about this reinvestment if we don't look at this as a way of reparations then 400 years of virginia history will only continue on in a way of enslaving black people and brown people we have to look at this as a chance to say, this is an opportunity for us to do the right thing and not just make a whole bunch of money for corporate stakeholders, for medical marijuana folks, for people with a bunch of money that are able to invest in this. The legalization of marijuana should actually be an attempt for Virginia to pay back the dues that is owed off of all the exploitation economics, of labor, of just trauma off the backs of Black and brown people.
1: Yes, and that is what we call restorative justice for the people (laughs) in the back. And some of them might be in the GA.
0: Right, right. You know, it it really has just been, it's been hard. It's been, it's been a lot, but I appreciate people wanting to listen. I appreciate the ACLU of Virginia stepping in and stepping us up with us. Ashna Kana has been amazing. I just knew that this was an opportunity to make some space in Virginia that we are not taking up. And as a Black woman, specifically, that has had family members who have been incarcerated for long periods of time due to nonviolent drug offenses, and as a racial justice advocate, I felt like this was definitely my calling.
1: So Chelsea, can you tell us how marijuana justice reform plays into the coronavirus and what we see happening with incarcerated folks in
0: Virginia? That's a great question. Um, I know a lot of people are really interested in getting um, involved in helping during COVID as well as in the marijuana justice movement in general. And if we just take, for example, the Richmond City Jail, this isn't a place where you're only there if you've been convicted. A lot of people there are just holding and they could be there holding because of marijuana possession. The new decriminalization laws don't come into effect until July 1. So right now we're expecting people to say, it's okay to risk their lives in a holding cell while a pandemic is happening. And now we're also saying, you know what? It's okay if somebody catches COVID and dies just because of a marijuana charge. That's kind of where we are. And so if you want to get involved and you want to stay in touch, definitely follow MarijuanaJustice.org. You can follow our comrades over at ACLU Virginia. They're having a big push of the decarceration efforts during COVID as well. And then you can also reach out if you're in Richmond, Virginia, reach out to the Commonwealth Attorney. Uh, Collette McEachin is in charge right now of the decarceration of the people and the jails. I know a lot of folks are talking about what's happening from the governor, but what's happening on April 22nd actually has nothing to do with your local jails. Those are the state correction facilities. So just really is an opportunity right now. Um, Talk to your elected official, your Commonwealth attorney, if you're interested in incarcerated people. Follow us at marijuanajustice.org and I really also want to invite folks to join us this Sunday and Monday at www.420experience.co. Um, 420 is not canceled. We are actually going to take this virtual and I'm joining Hope Wiseman who's hosting this two-day like virtual conference to talk about marijuana, have some fun, music, shopping, as well as some of these really important conversations. It's a lot of opportunity to step in. I'm excited, I'm nervous, um, but I'm also really hopeful. Thank you, Chelsea.
1: All right, so joining me in the studio today is Ashna Khanna. Uh, Ashna, do you just wanna go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are, what your pronouns are and um, some of the work you do?
2: So my name is Ashna Khanna and I'm the legislative director for the ACLU Virginia. Um, In my previous jobs, I've been a grassroots organizer and I'm from Detroit. And so um, my passion really lies in regards to community organizing policy reform, and social justice. My pronouns are she, her, and hers.
1: And where can people um, follow you in the work that you're doing?
2: Yeah, so a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, if you go to the ACLU of Virginia website, ACLUVA.org, you can see a lot of the different policy initiatives um, and legislative initiatives that we're taking on currently.
1: A lot is happening right now, but we really just kind of wanted to focus on this really monumental General Assembly session that we had. You know, that 2020 was supposed to be a very significant year for marijuana justice reform. This is really like the first time that the General Assembly has been controlled by Democrats in over 20 years. And so, you know, people were expecting that this would be the first time that marijuana justice reform would have a fair fight. So can you start and like just give us a brief summary about some of the marijuana justice bills that were debated during this General Assembly session.
2: So essentially marijuana reform, and you know, I can give a little bit of a background of why, you know, marijuana reform. Um, And so when we think about the criminal legal system, and we think about the way that people are interacting and entering the system, and then we think about racial justice in the history of marijuana reform, we know that this is a lead incarcerator of, um, and and a lead, reason that people are interacting with police and so um, as part of when we think about the criminal legal system we know that last year in Virginia 29,000 people were arrested for possession of marijuana and that's up from three times the decade before we know that at every level that this is a racial justice issue that if you are black in Virginia you are almost four times more likely to be arrested on simple marijuana possession and that is up as well and that we know that in parts of virginia that it that's as high as 10 times more likely to and so we know that even when we're talking about the nation that the largest amount of marijuana arrests from 2010 to 2018 virginia has half of those counties
1: wow prince,
2: yep mm-hmm. and prince george county has the largest increase of any county in america so what we're talking about and when we talk about other counties that were known for a hanover county has the fourth largest racial disparity in America. So not only is this something that needs to change, Virginia is falling behind. And this is a lead reason of racial injustice and the criminal legal system that we need to reform. And so this session, I think lawmakers and Virginia officials and statewide um, elected officials really wanted to take on marijuana reform. And what the ACLU of Virginia, alongside with many community advocates wanted, was that we address the racial justice issue. We know that other states that have decriminalized marijuana, and those were the bills that came forward, there were decriminalized marijuana bills that would have a civil penalty, not a criminal one, a civil penalty for a simple marijuana possession. But we know that when other states have enacted this, that this has not only done nothing to racial disparities, but they've increased. And so we know that at the same time, marijuana decriminalization doesn't get us to what we're talking about. It doesn't get us to where we need. When a community member says, a police officer pulled me over, and the reason they did so was, I smell marijuana, that is still legal, and that's still going to happen. Those interactions aren't going to be stopped by the current decriminalization legislation. And so what advocates wanted was no civil penalty, and we just wanted to repeal the prohibition, right? So we just wanted to stop interactions from law enforcement, that this be a primary way the law enforcement interact with community members.
1: Right. And so can we, um, you touch on a lot of important things there. Can we reemphasize those like very important differences between decriminalization and legalization, civil penalties versus criminal penalties, just very briefly, if you can.
3: Yeah.
2: So um, decriminalization puts in a civil fine, a fine. And so when we think about civil fines, it sets up a two-tiered system, where people who can afford to pay the fines and fees can pay it up front, but people who can't afford it, it sets up a system where they're stuck and um, they can't pay it in advance, and it's another way to get into the system. We also know that, for example, if I believe that I incorrectly got this civil penalty, I have to now hire my own lawyer, so I need to be able to afford to hire my own lawyer because I lost my right to counsel. Right. Yeah. And so we know that when we talk about decriminalization, that means that the police still give you a ticket. They are still interacting with you. And most times that's the initial interaction, but it leads to other charges, right? So if I smell marijuana and I use that as a premise to, you know, pull you over or stop you, it, it genuinely leads to other charges. And that's what we're seeing.
1: And so when we when we talk about the people that are advocating for these different, you know, specificities in these bills, who benefits? Yeah,
2: so I would say, you know, um, the people who don't benefit are people of lower socioeconomic status, black people and communities of color. Right. The people who have been, you know, is overwhelmingly marijuana laws are targeting black and brown community members. And intentionally or unintentionally, the current decriminalization bills are going to continue to contribute to that inequality. This is part of the war on drugs, right? We know the war on drugs have been a war on people and particularly people of color. And so we know that experts across the country are pointing out how decriminalization is just going to allow the institutions to continue to discriminate against people of color. And so this doesn't benefit them and it doesn't benefit community members who are facing these issues, interacting with law enforcement and you know these discriminatory practices.
1: So, I know there was also a lot of discussion about how these bills um, sort of sought to target youth. Is there anything you can talk about on that matter?
2: We know that black youth between the ages of 18 to 24 are the number one group impacted by simple marijuana possession charges. We also know that when I talked about the 29,000 people who were convicted of simple marijuana possession in Virginia in 2019, 54% of that were individuals between the ages of 18 and 25. Um, When we think about rehabilitation and we think about youth, we should not be thinking that we should do a juvenile delinquency charge. And that is what the current um, bill does. It basically says that if you are a juvenile and you're caught with marijuana, instead of thinking about a child in need of services or thinking about a more rehabilitative approach where children can learn more about the drugs and, you know, what that means and and what that does to minds and bodies and so on and so forth and instead of taking that kind of approach and thinking about it individually what we're doing is literally having another reason for children to enter the criminal legal system and we know that children who come into contact with the criminal legal system at young ages the impact that it has into their overall life is huge not to mention the interaction with law enforcement and so right now the bill juvenile delinquency also means a mandatory revocation of your driver's licenses for six months. I have grandmas telling me during legislative session, God forbid my grandson decides to do something stupid and is caught with simple marijuana possession, then he can't go to after school sports. I have to drive him around everywhere. He can't go to his job. He can't pick up his siblings. And so that's something I'm going to have to take on. And so that is really the reality is that this is setting up families for failure and it's setting up youth for failure too. to contri- continue to be great active um you know part of your high school experience you know going to work being a, a great citizen and, and a productive citizen what we're doing is we're really m- creating more opportunities where youth are going to not they're going to break the law and then that's not that's not okay and and it's really sad to see this is the way that we're going about it
1: Definitely. And I think it's really important that you touch on the fact that this uh, issue is really crippling to families as well in so many different aspects. Like you said, even as simple as something like inconveniencing parents to have to now leave their work to be responsible for their their, uh, child. So that's an issue that I don't think that is touched on broad enough is like the very deep and impactful ways that this affects families. Would you? How would you describe your ex- overall experience taking on this issue? Who were the major opponents of your bill, and can you specify what that was? Uh, and who were the ma- major allies of that? So,
2: um, so, we presented a bill with Delegate Carol Boy um, as the lead patron, um, House Bill fifteen oh seven, which unfortunately was not even read and and, and um, was passed on to the next year. Right, so we had advocates fill up the room. Um, and there was a bit of, uh, they didn't even read the bill. And so what 1507 would do, it would remove all penalties for simple marijuana possession to end racially biased drug enforcement. It would allow children to have simple marijuana possession, not as a crime, but as a child in need of services. Um, We had an expungement provision that would apply to past convictions. um, and, And that would mean that there wouldn't be future expungement it would be unnecessary because I know that people talk about the financial impact. Um, And then it also incorporated two recommendations, which was allowing up to a personal amount of one ounce and then incorporating hash into the definition. So not only that, we looked at the bills that were presented. We thought about our values, which was like, how do we actually reform, like decarcerate in a racially just way and ensure that these, you know, um, interactions with law enforcement go down, the discriminatory ones. And this was the bill that we came up with. And we said, look, we know that we're not ready for legalization and regulation, right? It's going to take a study. We knew that's that's a year, a couple years out, right? That's a year out. We want to study it. Okay, let's do that. Let's put together a committee. But we felt that the first step forward would be to just repeal it, to make it so that you would remove all penalties.
1: And and so what was the bill that is was currently uh, signed into law?
2: Yeah, so um, Senate Bill 2 and House Bill 972 was signed into law. And basically what it does is it decriminalizes. It's a $25 penalty, civil penalty. Um, it makes any child who is fa- uh, found with simple marijuana possession um, a child delinquency charge, as we had touched upon. And the other thing that there is no expungement provisions in the bill whatsoever. And the other thing is, is that the rebuttable presumption, which is kind of legal jargon, basically to say, is that if I am caught with undercounts, right, and right now that should be a $25 civil penalty, but the police officer or the Commonwealth attorney believe that I was going to pass this out to my friends, they can still charge me with intent to distribute, which is a felony conviction. So you're even seeing that in this current decriminalization bill, there are still ways that if police officers and commonwealth attorneys and, you know, say that I'm walking around campus and I have a brownie and I think this is legal, there's going to be a lot of public education needed. Still a civil penalty. There's still um, a lot of, you know, from getting a civil penalty, a lot of things that come after it that have to do with jobs and access to loans, immigration status, so on and so forth. Unintended consequences. And at the end of the day, I could still get intent to distribute if they believe, if you know actors believe that I am going to distribute this. So
1: what do you What do you think are the next steps for advocates? This is clear that this does not go far enough, and I, we hear community members saying that, and uh, who were saying that during this past session, and were kind of silenced out of the process.
2: So unfortunately, you know, we did write a letter to the governor. We asked him to amend the bills in the ways that I have talked about um, previously. Um, And the governor actually today, uh, earlier today, released a press release that he signed the bill as is. Um, And so right now, um, we also requested, since there's going to be a committee that's studying this, that we have people of color and community members represented. And as of now, we don't have civil liberties, um, community members represented. We don't have other advocates represented. So that's the first thing I would say. I would say that community members need to get together and make sure that we are a part of the conversation, when it comes to next year's legislation. Because as of now, the committee has the AG, it has Commonwealth attorneys, it has normal, it has a very you know um, subset of groups who are going to be looking at this and proposing legislation for the next year. And what we need to make sure is that we're a part of that conversation, that we're at the table and we're having these conversations with lawmakers ahead of time. And that we really educate the public too on what this is, because you know a lot of times decriminalization was seen as a huge victory. Um, and we can't let that be mm-hmm. the dominant narrative. We need to come together as a community um, and really make sure that we are holding you know, lawmakers accountable to make sure that racial justice is at the center of any reform going forward.
1: Just in case you forgot, that was an interview with Legislative Director Ashna Khanna of ACLU Virginia. You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio.
0: Hey y'all, it's Chelsea again. I'm jumping back in the show to do one interview. This one is special to me because it's about a Black woman filling in the gap and shifting the narrative. Okay, I'm really excited today to have with me Hope Wiseman of Marion, Maine. Thank you so much for being here, Hope.
4: Thanks, Chelsea, for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much. So tell me a little bit about um, how you got in the cannabis industry. I've been able to Google and look you up and hear you speak a little bit just about being the youngest African-American woman dispensary owner, which is amazing. So tell us a little bit about how you got started there.
4: Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I first started in the industry, I definitely wasn't thinking that I would have that platform or that title at all. Um, I just saw an opportunity to, to build generational wealth for my family. Um, So I had just graduated from college. I was fresh out of school working in investment banking. I was an economics major, so I definitely was thinking along those lines. And so in 2014, that's when I first really started thinking about the industry from a business perspective. Um, That's around the time that cannabis started becoming mainstream and you started seeing it on CNN, Time Magazine, Forbes. And for me, it caught my attention because I realized that the industry would grow to be really, really large within Mm -hmm. the next 20, 30 years, Mm -hmm. and that this was the ground floor. So I knew that my opportunity to enter an industry that would grow so big was definitely early. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just started to kind of look up how things worked, and I realized, okay, cannabis is really, really complicated. It's highly regulated. Um, It's not an easy uh, industry to enter, Mm -hmm. so at least from a plant-touching side, Mm -hmm. Um, and I I looked up the laws in Georgia where I was living at the time. I realized nothing was going on in Georgia, at least nothing that I could be a part of, (laughs) so um, I started to think, what's the next state that I have resources and connections in at 21, 22, Um, and that was my home state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. I, uh, my mother is a dentist here and an entrepreneur. She owns real estate here um, and she just, you know, raised me to have that entrepreneurial spirit. So I presented the idea and a small business plan to my mother um, and we just went after it. And now here we are almost, what, six years later um, and, you know, we're operating in the industry and we're looking at uh, opportunities to grow. So it's really exciting.
0: That is an incredible story. And it's even more inspiring to hear you doing it with your mama.
4: And I think that's like my favorite part about everything. It's a really like, especially right now, while we're still small, it's a such a family atmosphere. Even our general manager is that's my mother's best friend. And I mean, I've known him since I was maybe 12, 13. Mm-hmm. So it's a real family atmosphere. It's a family business. And you know, it's, it's built like that. It's built with so much love.
0: That's really dope. Um, and I just want to also lift really quickly about your mom having a, a dentist's office, real estate. Yeah. So you come from a legacy of strong women.
4: Definitely. Um, My mother, like, yeah, she's she's a dentist. She owns her own practice. She opened it the year I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's funny, you'll see like old pictures of me in like a a cradle somewhere while she's like working on teeth. So, um, (laughs) you know, I've literally been right next to her Mm -hmm. the whole time. My brothers as well have been exposed to, you know, everything she's been doing. And then Mm -hmm. my grandmother is, uh, she also still, my grandmother is um, 86. (laughs) <laughs> and she is still, uh, you know, trying to collect rent from uh, her tenants. She's a <laughs> real estate broker in Orangeburg, South Carolina. She cracked us up. That's so, uh, and then my great grandmother was an entrepreneur. So it really just, it it, it definitely runs in my family for mm-hmm. sure. And my mom instilled it in me from mm-hmm. an early age, which I think gave me the confidence to be able to pursue this at such a young age. I don't even know if I was thinking that I was too young, you know, I just, that's just not how I was raised to think.
0: Right. No, it's dope that you just went after it and you had the support system there to guide you and work with you in that. I think it's also just amazing that you're now part of the narrative of shifting cannabis to a a family, legit, I mean, a, a wealth building industry that's front facing and something that you can be proud of. I mean, let's be honest that it's been a survival mechanism for many families, um, mm-hmm. In the black market, and as when people are talking about who's taking up um, that industry behind the scenes, it has been black and brown folks. But to see you out front doing it, um, yeah. and especially making it family oriented as a black woman, I think is that's huge.
4: I mean, so I have a fourteen-year-old brother, okay, um, and it's really <laughs> it's it's funny because you know he has been introduced to cannabis at such a early age. He mm-hmm. was, um what, like eight when we started this. Right. So, (laughs) you know, he, he's definitely kind of grown up learning about it. He he knows how to talk to people about cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um, and he also understands that he's too young to use it. Right. So I think definitely like, like you said, shifting the narrative to this can be something that is legit in a family business. Um, but still understanding how to introduce cannabis to children. Right. Um, you know, we have a lot of experience with that. I even, I, we talked about this when we went on IG live together, kind of talking to your family about cannabis and how to do that. Cause I had to go through that. Me and my mother had to go through that yeah. with our family when we were going through this. I mean, first I had to get over the barrier with my mom. Luckily she's very free thinking and she's always been open to me because I've always been honest to her. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it was it was an easy conversation with her, but it was still a conversation that had to be had. Sure. And then from there, I mean, when we started going into the business at first, I mean, I had aunts and uncles that straight up would would say, like, you guys are going to get arrested. (laughs) Like, don't let people know what you do. I'm like, we're we're applying for a whole state license. Like, It's going to be public information.
0: (laughs) Right, right.
4: Yeah, uh, you know, but yeah. nowadays, now, once you see articles and stuff about it, that's why I knew when I started seeing it on, like, CNN, Forbes, I was like, oh, now, I was like, ooh, I might have missed the, the, the time period, because right. if they're already talking about it there, then exactly. I might have missed it. But it was still early enough.
0: Right, and that is, I mean, that's one of the benefits to now going state by state, is that we can learn from each other, and we can see each other and be inspired by each other. Um exactly. I also just want to hear a little bit about your experience in this space, mm-hmm. um, because we do know it's less than 1% of Black-owned dispensaries, and just what that's been like for you.
4: Yeah, so it's funny, because in the beginning, I, that that wasn't a real reality to me, um, until I, because like you said before, I, I everything I had known about cannabis was from Black and brown people. Mm-hmm. So, like, the idea that this legal industry didn't really have that many wasn't settling with me until I started traveling and meeting people, speaking at a lot of conferences. And I was like, oh, wow, like, it's really mm-hmm. not that many of us. It's to the point where I literally know probably every single African-American dispensary owner in the United States at this point. Wow. And I'm not saying that, like, I know hundreds of people. I know the 20 or so of right. us that there are. Um so, you know, it's crazy. Even, um, I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, at this weekend, I'm hosting a virtual conference, the 420 Experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the panels, the, uh, the, license, not the licensing panel, that's a completely different one that has a lot of really dope African-American licensees on it as well. Mm-hmm. But there's a panel about uh, cannabis retail. Um, and dispensaries. Yeah. And it's all black owned dispensaries on it. So I'm really excited about that. And yes. some really cool people, people who are taking advantage of the social equity programs, um, some that are not like myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that.
0: That is exciting. Um, so please tell us more about the 420 experience. Um, yeah, I, I know the listeners got to hear a little bit when I was speaking to Naomi about it about hot and politics that I'll be on. But tell us about just What made you come up with this idea of hosting this virtual space?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, okay, it started with, so COVID hit. And at first, I don't think it was a reality that we, everything would be canceled. Right. Um, And then all of a sudden we realized, okay, we're really going to be in the house. So (laughs) once I realized that, I, I said to myself, what can I do on 420 to connect with people Um, I'm constantly being hit up for um, advice and and guidance in the industry, and I want to be able to offer people that guidance. Um, So I figured, how can I reach the most people in a time where we can't be connected, but bring a sense of community when we can't be physically in front of each other? So um, I was introduced to a hosting platform called Hopin which allowed for, you know, one-on-one networking. It allowed for individual sessions. It allowed for a lot of interaction. Um, it has virtual expo booths. So we have vendors who are going to be in there. You can actually physically go into the booth and chat with the vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, you can exchange contact information, and it saves it in your profile. So you can go back and um, connect with people that you met at the conference. Wow. So you get to really experience a full-on uh, like in-person conference experience mm-hmm. right in your living room, right on your computer. That's really so good. I just thought that was so different and unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know so many people in the industry. I just started calling up all my friends.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> um, and, it, and it pulled together and now it's a full two day you know conference experience. and I'm just so, so proud of uh, the team that I had that pulled it together. so I definitely want to thank them. You guys are awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a full two day experience with three tracks, business, lifestyle, and justice. So we have some policy panels, like you're going to be on pot and politics. There's another one, um, justice and joints, and we're working on a really big uh, headliner for the policy track as well. Um, that hopefully we'll be able to announce very, very soon. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for lifestyle, we have some really fun stuff, cooking with cannabis, Mm -hmm. um, CBD, yoga, a workout, mm-hmm. all different types of stuff. Um, then for business, we have, like I was saying, the licensing panel, the um, dispensary panel, CBD, retail, farming, mm-hmm. um, so many different panels, a panel on veterans' access to cannabis. I oh, mean great. Yeah. I, I mean, we it's stacked. Right. Any way you want to be involved in the industry – This conference has at least one session, probably up to five, Mm -hmm. that would interest you. So, I mean, you're getting all of this. Normal conferences like this cost in the hundreds. This conference is $20. So I'm super excited to be able to offer that type of value to everyone who's interested in the industry.
0: Right. And... And I know that many people are attending a bunch of free webinars and things, but like you just said, this is an opportunity to experience a new platform. I think we're all sick of seeing each other on Zoom, to be real honest. (laughs) Um, Number two, it it has something for everyone, even if you're not even sure what your attraction to the industry is quite yet. This This is an opportunity to see what people are doing, listen, and also meet people because like you said, they're just... There are a bunch of us in it, but in the larger perspective, there's not a bunch of us actually there. So we have an opportunity to connect and grow and build on something just because we are really tight knit in this way. Exactly. Um, and I, I would love for you just in the last couple of minutes we have left to tell our listeners here in Virginia specifically, we, on July 1st, 2020, our state will officially have decriminalized marijuana and fully legalized medical marijuana. So we are taking full steps forward. This is an Mm -hmm. opportunity for people to really be thinking now, like you did a few years ago, where to step in. Just any words of inspiration or thoughts to keep in our mind as we move forward?
4: Definitely. So not that I am not um, completely happy, and I believe in divine order. So I I definitely believe that um, I am where I am because I'm supposed to be. But I wish that I had been more exposed to the different ways that I could have supported the industry rather than just going after a dispensary license or a growing processing license. Um, You know, a state, especially like in Virginia, those licenses are uh, going to be extremely difficult. Well, first off, they've already been uh, given out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the program is expanded, it will probably not be expanded widely, and it will probably still be very competitive and difficult to get. Right. So uh, I would really encourage people to do two things. Um, I'd say first, examine your existing skill sets, what you are good at, um, and, and or what resources you have access to. Um, And, you know, that could just mean, like, for me, I am good at business organization. I'm really the true function of a CEO or COO. That's Mm -hmm. really, like, what I can do, a project manager. Uh, um, So I really could do a lot of different types of business models. So I would say just figure out what your skill set is, whether it's broad like that or more Mm micro-focused, like you're a graphic designer, um, and then tailor your business model to attract the second thing, tailor your business model to attract the, the companies that are in your market. So, you know, study the companies that are in um, Virginia and see how you can support them mm. and what they need and then learn to be unique to the laws in Virginia, um, because that's what will give you the, the leg up against any competition in other states.
0: That sounds like really good advice, Hope. And where can people follow you?
4: Yeah, so you can follow me. I'm the most active on Instagram. So you can follow me at I am Hope so dope, exactly how it sounds. Um, you can also find me at my website, HopeWiseman.com. And then you can find my store, Mary and at uh, Mary and on Instagram or uh, Twitter, and then MaryandMain.com. And you spell out the whole word.
0: Great, great. And let's not get out of here without telling them a little bit about how to find out more about the 420 Experience this weekend.
4: Definitely. So you can register um, up to any time, even actually during the event at 420 Experience, so the numbers 420Experience.co. So 420Experience.co.
0: Great, great. And it's in your bio and your IG it's on our information on race capital if you need to find out more and hope we're just really excited that you were able to talk to us and that you're out there doing the damn thing so thank you so much
4: so are you chelsea and I'm, i'm honored thank you
0: Up next, we're back with Naomi, who's interviewing a representative out of Michigan. Here is Jewel Jones.
3: So uh, I'm a state representative for the 11th district out in Michigan, uh, covering about five communities on the southern and western uh, tips of Detroit. Uh, Inkster, which is my hometown, Garden City, Dearborn Heights, Livonia, and Westland. I've been doing this since 2016. and Before that, I was on city council in my hometown in 2015. Um, But... Uh, I am the vice chair of the Military Veterans and Homeland Security Committee, and I work on regulatory reform as well. So um, I keep my hands busy in basically any any licensing in the state, any regulations in the state, any contracts in the state, um, is there anything concerning our our law enforcement, our homeland security, and our, our military and veterans as well.
1: So can you just tell us a little bit more about an expungement bill that you worked on over this past year?
3: Right, so I, uh, I actually had the chance to work on an expungement bill. We we did a, a entire bill package, um, but myself and Isaac Robinson, uh, one of the state representatives from Detroit, um, unfortunately, he actually just passed away from the from the coronavirus. Um, he's a, uh I'm not sure if we all seen the news, but um, he passed away about a, a week ago. Um, and him and I worked on this bill dealing with expungements around marijuana. Um, basically helping folks out who might have gotten these charges back in the day and who are still locked up, You know, seeing that we're about to begin to benefit from uh, not only mar- uh, medical marijuana, but recreational marijuana, we want to go ahead and, and, and help save these people that have traditionally been locked down by the system um, for trivial, trivial crimes. You know, So anything that was a nonviolent offense, um, the bill basically aim to have automatic expungement for that. Um, it's not exactly to the point where we wanted to just yet, Um, But we're figuring out how we can streamline it a bit more so we can make it a bit more automatic. But as it currently stands right now with expungements, all you have to do is uh, take a simple application, fill it out. A prosecutor would have 60 days um, to challenge you in court. If they don't, it'll be cleared off your record uh, after those 60 days. So that's basically what the entire bill was about. I mean, that was with that was Isaac Robinson
1: Thank you, thank you for explaining that for us.
3: with expungements are so critical because folks who might have felonies on their records, so or even misdemeanors, for example, um, but especially felonies, because felonies actually uh, prevent people from uh, getting employed, they prevent people from ownership in our communities. And so basically whenever we have a chance to expunge someone's record and give them a, a chance to back at life, I um, mean, it's extremely critical. So I, that's why I think why, um, the legislature in Michigan especially has had the appetite for expungements um, because there's been so much going on and there's so many societal pressures people who are actually trying to get their life back on track, um, but they can't because of some issues they might have uh, made, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Um, so that's basically the biggest thing around expungements, is really just giving people an opportunity at life.
1: Once again, that was Michigan State Representative Joel Jones. You can find him on Instagram... With the handle, Joelle Jones MI. The protection of black lives is not debatable. The black collective is not some disposable body in the quality of our lives. Our right to justice and liberty is defenseless when met with the inaction of policymakers who care more about funding their re-election campaigns than they do about staying honest and true to the interests of their constituents. COVID-19 is not the only pandemic we are faced with, and we need legislators who are willing to act with the true urgency that this situation is afforded. It is our moral obligation to our movement and those who have lost their lives to the struggle and all those who continue to suffer due to harsh criminalization of marijuana. Thank you to all the advocates who continue to devote themselves to this work. My name is Naomi Isaac. And thank you for listening to Race Capital.